There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee, Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Hello and welcome back to The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Here in Season 2, we've been uh, exploring a little bit of the lives and of uh, major players in church history and major movements in church history. Uh, and we continue that theme today with a repeat guest. I'm joined again by Karen Marsh, author of Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transform My Faith. It's a wonderful book that combines... Um, sort of a short biographies of important figures in church history, as well as a bit of autobiography of how it affected, uh, how that study affected her life and influenced her. In a previous episode, Karen discussed with me St. Augustine and his mother, Monica. Obviously, St. Augustine, one of the most influential figures in the history of uh, Christianity. Today, we are discussing St. Francis and St. Clair. So another... Um, duo that is plays a very important role, particularly in uh, the history of the Western Church and the history of monasticism. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Karen Marsh. All right. Well, Karen Marsh, thank you so much for joining me again. It's good to have you back on the Commons. It is great to be with you, Brian. Um, now, last time, this, is, this has been a little while ago, we discussed... Um, one chapter from your book uh, that was released uh, 
late last year in the fall, uh, Vintage Saints and Sinners, uh, 25 Christians Who Transform My Life. And the book I've found really fascinating, uh, this kind of combination of history and autobiography. The last time we were talking about uh, St. Augustine and his mother, Monica, um, and today we're going to be talking about another duo, uh, not a not a, a mother and son, but a man and a woman who became closely connected. So we're going to talk about uh, Saints Francis and Claire. So um, looking forward to this. Um, in the beginning of the chapter we're discussing today, uh, you mentioned that you live in a place that has been voted America's most energetic city. Now I yes. have to ask, I have to ask that just sounds exhausting honestly. Uh, it's a it's a real thing Brian. I mean I uh it was voted America's most energetic city. I think it's been about 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Uh I don't know if you remember Parade magazine. I don't even know if it's still a thing anymore, but they did. They had this national search for the most energetic city and they decided on Charlottesville. And when they decided on Charlottesville, then they picked the most energetic couple. And I happen to know this couple and they were both, they had five kids. Um, they had both competed in Ironman competitions and they were truly phenomenal, but this is, this is my world. You know, I'm surrounded by 18 year old kids who run and faster than, than I can. And most of my friends are very serious athletes. Um, so we have mountain biking, rock climbing, we have triathlons for kid, little kids, um, <laughs> hot yoga. I mean, we've got lots of yoga, lots of massage, acupuncture. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we're ready. We're, we're, we're very active people. So I'm just like kind of a run of the mill athlete, but I do, I feel like a real slacker most of the time. Well, and the chapter that you wrote on St. Francis, it sort of makes all of us feel like slackers, I guess. Um, because mm-hmm. it sounds like that St. Francis might have fit right in, in Charlottesville, uh, at least in terms of energy, maybe, maybe not doing an Ironman, but, uh, he was an extremely active man, mm-hmm. al- always doing something, progressing in some way throughout his life. Um, so let's, let's start early on in the life of St. Francis. Uh, what do we know about his, his early life, his childhood? Well, Francis Bernardoni was the son of a merchant and uh, a merchant family. So they had a thriving business in Assisi, uh, the town of Assisi in Italy in the 12th century. And um, so he was a child of privilege. Uh, They had plenty of money and a beautiful shop. Um, He was really known as a natural leader among the cool kids uh, in in town. He was nicknamed Frenchie because he apparently could speak French or his father often traveled to France um, to get fabric. And he was known as the king of the youth because he would um, kind of take the lead in running those late night rambles through town. And he was part of some little fraternity. So in that way, he actually would fit in here at our, in our university town too. Right, right. He loved to sing. He sang ballads in very bad French, apparently, <laughs> and uh, was just loved by everybody. He loved to have a good time. And his friend, you know, his parents, Pietro and Pika, um, adored him and they 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 made sure he learned enough latin and writing and accounting to to get along in business but um he was a young man a leader in town who was really headed for success in his community and in his social circles hmm. um and some of those things began to change certainly not his his energy or activity but when francis was a young man he he went away to war um this of course was at a time when 
um, cities or city states were almost operated like their own kingdoms. Um, and so he went away to war between these two cities. Um, and how did that time change him? I mean, of course, war never leaves someone the same, but how did it change Francis? Well, his, uh, his story, he got caught up in this battle. Um, and it sounds like he really volunteered for it. All the boys were going out to fight the boys of Assisi against the boys of Perugia across the way. And so he galloped out, you know, fully expecting to, to, to win another one and come back, uh, come back to town. But in that battle, Assisi was defeated by Perugia and he was captured. He was imprisoned, uh, I believe, for about a year and a half. And of course, prisons in medieval Italy were, were no place you'd want to be. Hmm. It was infested by rats and he was ill and he had bizarre dreams. It was a, a terrible time of trauma for him. And when he finally was released out of prison... He came home, and yes, he was a he was a war veteran. And you hear about his his anxiety, his despair. He was strange. He didn't want a party. Um, and you think about uh, PTSD. I mean, a lot of the descriptions of his behavior uh, fall in line with with that sort of affliction. And so, no, he was a changed person. He was, and and the boys, his friends, couldn't get get him to come out. His parents were worried about him you know, what had become of this Frenchy Bernadon that they love so much. And then he started behaving um, in, in more strange ways in terms of his spiritual life, his practices. It is said that he took a pilgrimage to Rome, which meant a walk of more than 100 miles. And it wasn't that unusual for, of course, people at that time to make a pilgrimage, but he gave away his traveling money. There in Rome, he he saw a beggar and he took off his own rich clothes and traded clothes with this beggar and then begged for alms himself. So he, you know, he started doing these very strange things. And then he walked back to his CZ and his, of course, his parents didn't know what to do with him. They were so, so worried. And because the poor guy would go wandering in the woods by himself, um, as all of his friends and sort of peers got married and settled into their lives in business and society in Assisi. And, and he simply what he was not making those kinds of adjustments as uh, all of his other friends who many of whom were coming back from war as well. Um, so he was sure. just not adjusting. Yeah. No, That'd be a, a no. very scary um, situation for, for his parents looking on certainly. Um, uh, and it's during that time that Francis had another life changing event as well it's after he's returned from war and doesn't seem to be adjusting, but it, but it happened in, um, an old rundown kind of abandoned chapel. Um, so talk to us about that event. Tell us what happened to Francis there and where did that lead him? Well, this is one of the, you know, one of the famous stories, I think, in, in Christian church history, in which here's this poor kid, Francis, wandering in the woods through forests and caves. And one hot afternoon, he stepped into a chapel um, down the mountain from Assisi. It was abandoned. It was pretty much um, falling apart. And there he was in this dark, cool chapel. And above the altar, there was an image of Christ crucified. And it is said that the voice of Jesus was heard from this crucifix saying to Francis, Francis, rebuild my house 
which as you can see is falling down. So in this course, what an incredible uh, spiritual experience to, you know, hear the voice of Jesus Mm -hmm. and Francis um, being who he was, didn't give it a second thought, got right to work on repairing this, this chapel. And, you know, he threw himself into the project. Finally, he had a purpose in his life. He was um, building up this little church where he, uh, he moved there. He was praying there. He was sleeping there. He was meditating Um, but of course, chapel renovations take resources and money. So Francis, uh, went back to his father's shop, took valuable cloth and sold it off, uh, to buy materials for the chapel. And, um, you know, you, you can see how he would have been thinking, well, this is, this is for God's work. Just take what is due for God. No problem. But, um, Pietro, his father did not see it that way and, um, called him out, uh, and demanded that Francis, you know, stop this foolishness and certainly not sell off his uh, valuable cloth. Mm-hmm. And so Francis um, did this thing that uh, shocked the townspeople. And it is said, the story is that in the crowded piazza in the town square, Francis stood in front of his father, stripped off all of his clothes, which of course his father had given to him and returned them to his father. And there was a, I believe there was a bishop or or a priest standing by who wrapped him in his cloak quickly (laughs) because the poor guy was naked. And Francis said, that's it. God is my only father. Hmm. You know, you can take back your money. You can take back your business, your clothes. You know, I'm, I'm renouncing this privilege, um, this, these material goods and possessions, and I'm going to follow Jesus anywhere. Hmm. And, um, So with that act, you know, he truly changed his life. And from there, um, another really important moment happened for him in which he was walking by the side of the road out in the countryside and he passed a leper. And of course, at that time, lepers were not unusual. Leprosy was a, a serious disease. And he had a particular revulsion for lepers as a child. Um, they had black boils and truncated limbs, very disfigured. And he'd always been especially terrified and disgusted by them. So he sort of hurried past. And then he had this moment in which he remembered Jesus's loving encounters with lepers in the scriptures, in the Bible. And I think through the work of the Holy Spirit, in that moment, he had a change of heart. He rushed back and literally embraced this diseased man. And in that moment of showing mercy to a man that he would have always ignored and run away, he was shown mercy. And you know, I see these steps that he took toward healing in his own spirit, that by showing love and showing mercy to a person who was really sick in his body, that Francis himself received some healing from the Lord in his own spirit. And, you know, he saw this leper as touching Christ himself. Um, So it was just these amazing moments, I think, of opportunity where Francis had a decision to make. You know, would he hear the voice of Christ? Would he follow it by rebuilding this chapel? Would he pass this leper by and ignore him? Or would he turn back and show him mercy? So, you know, in all of these ways, um, Francis was drawing more closely to Jesus and to Christ and to to healing from his, his war wounds. Right. Um, now in, in your book, you, you mentioned that St. Francis was determined to quote, uh, imitate Christ in every literal way. 
And I, I think that's a, a nice summation of um, what happened in the life of St. Francis after this, you know, uh, uh, from the rebuilding of the chapel and embracing the the leper to the rest of his life. I mean, he, he sought to imitate Christ literally. Um, and how did that play out in, um, in the rest of his life from there? Those, those seem to be sort of watershed moments for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that play out in the rest of his life and in the later on in, in the lives of his followers? Well, St. Francis, you know, he was, in some ways, quite a literalist. I mean, he, he knew the scriptures, he was taught the Bible. Um, you know, he was a person of the church. And so he just thought, well, I'm going to follow Jesus in every possible way. And you can see him living this life in which he read a verse and then he followed it, you know, as simply as that. And to him, I think it was an obvious, it was an obvious choice that he made. So three examples I can give you, Brian. The first in um, Luke chapter nine, Jesus says, take nothing for the journey, neither bread nor money, and do not have a spare tunic. I mean, I think I've, I know I've heard that verse growing up. Well, for Francis, of course, the cloth merchant's son, he then said, okay, he refused to buy clothes. He wore kind of old rough garments with ropes. He gave up shoes altogether. Um, If it was cold, if someone asked him and he had a cloak, he would just give it away. Um, Jesus said, don't have a spare tunic. So he didn't. Um, He wouldn't touch money. Um, He would work for his food, but he wouldn't uh, touch money. And um, the the other verse that he loved was Matthew 8, 20. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So Francis looked at that, said, okay, okay. That's what Jesus did. I will sleep on the ground. I won't live in a house. Um, he slept under the stars or maybe in the, on the floor of a chapel. And uh, he just thought, well, that's what Jesus did. That's what I'll do. And the, the verse Matthew 6, 34, in which Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Um, Francis really seriously took that literally to the point where his followers say that he wouldn't even soak dried beans at night, because that's like too much about worrying about planning for tomorrow. (laughs) So the thing is, he was, he was such a literalist. I mean, I think we all know maybe people like this in which, you know, they, they, they hear a thing and they do it literally. And it just got to be in some ways, like it seemed crazy. One critic said that he, Francis, pursued this naive, almost manic imitation of Jesus. Um, and, but the, you know, we think, well, that seems extreme, but in, in a way, clearly, and most importantly, Francis was a free man, right? He didn't have to worry about clothes. He didn't worry about shoes. He didn't worry about where he was going to sleep or his food. He was free to, rebuild the chapel. He was free to heal lepers. He was free to run around the country and speak of Christ. And he would preach outside. They wouldn't let him in churches because he was like, you know, the priest didn't want him, you know, in the pulpit. (laughs) He was nuts, but he would just preach these wonderful kind of entertaining sermons. And his, of course, what I think is so interesting is the other kids in town, the other boys that he'd grown up with who had always loved him, they saw him and they started to follow him. So they would leave their families, who of course 
didn't like that one bit to follow Francis, to be like one of the boys, one of the brothers, and they would sleep together. They had a kind of a, an encampment out in the woods where there was sort of their home base. And they were pursuing this way of an exuberant Jesus um, who, hmm. you know, didn't have property, didn't have coins, didn't have plans, um, who lived and loved uh, as Jesus did. And they call themselves God's jugglers, just like those troubadours that would come through town. So they really embraced the joy and the freedom of this way of life. Um, and it's it was really quite made quite a splash in the town. I'm sure all the mothers and fathers wanted to keep their boys away from Francis. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting to me um, that, you know, many of us uh, maybe pride ourselves is perhaps not the best way to put it, but we, uh, we very boldly speak of, you know, taking scripture seriously, sometimes even saying things like we take the, the Bible literally. Um, but then when you compare that assertion to Francis, mm. um, you, we really don't, um, at least not in the same way that he did. And it's difficult for me in hearing his story to, to think, um, you know, there's one part of me that says, uh, wow, this, this is crazy, you know, yeah, not, not to definitely. unkindly of the man, you know, certainly not, uh, but but that's, that's crazy. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, well, you know, he was at the very least erring on the side of obedience, right? Yes. And there's really something to be said for that. Mm -hmm. You know, if, um, we very often will kind of excuse things like that. Well, you know, yeah, but where's the line? How much is too much? You know, did it, was that supposed to be taken literally or not? And, you know, his, his, manner of life was to err on the side of doing what Jesus did. And there's something really, uh, very, very powerful, very, um, very compelling about mm -hmm. that, very attractive, you know, to that. Um, now one, one part of the, of your chapter on St. Francis that really made me sit back and laugh was, uh, you, you brought up a trend in the nineties, uh, that had a lot of people, especially Christian teenagers. Um, I was one of them. Yeah, me too. Uh, also, <laughs> also considering um, how they could follow Christ in more concrete, literal ways. And of course, that trend was the WWJD bracelet trend, which um, which goes back to the book In His Steps, right? right. You know, asking yourself in every decision, what would Jesus do? Um but you you observed that that trend also fell short of Francis's example. So how so? What what did you notice that was different in the way that Francis tried to follow Christ in every literal way and the way that Christian teenagers in the 90s were attempting to? <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think you're making a great point, which is, you know, we all want to many of us do truly want to follow Jesus. And, you know, as a teenager to stop, you know, it's a Friday night, somebody uh, offers you um, a beer, let's say, and you look down at your arm and you say, what would Jesus do? Well, that's, you're not going to, you're not going to take the beer, right? It's going to help you remember you, you know, who you are and what your choices are. Um, or maybe you'll, you'll be kinder to the person on the bench with you um, at the football game. Um, you know, it's a good thing. And Francis, but Francis just took it all the way, right? What would Jesus do? I'll do that. And, you know, most of us just don't 
um, really follow through. And I'm not saying that we should. I mean, I'm not living like Francis and Claire, but I respect the guy for um, being having the courage to really, truly um, take it all the way. And I think we have a tendency to be practical, um, to imitate Jesus insofar as it's comfortable for us, um, or in which, you know, we don't have to sacrifice too much. And I don't, you know, I, but I, and it raises for me the question, well, what if we just tried to be a little more literal, take a few more steps toward what would Jesus do? And, and so when I think about my own life, um, you know, I don't think it would mean sleeping on the ground, hopefully, but um, it might mean, you know, really um, having courage when I when I'm in a conversation or I hear someone um, saying something uh, unkind or something racist, you know, or being um, cruel or or disregarding the poor. I mean, f- breaking teachings that we know that Jesus taught us about how we are to live in community with other people, you know, what our responsibilities to God and to the world are. You know, so many times I protect my own safety, my own interests, my own way of life, my own possessions, because, you know, I, I love that stuff. I have a selfish, fearful side. And yet, you know, if only I could be a little more generous, a little more free, Mm. um, make some more sacrifices, um, you know, Francis kind of pushes me in that direction, or at least helps me see, take a fresh look at, you know, am I doing what I say? You know, do, am I following Jesus, whether I'm wearing the bracelet or not? I don't have my bracelet anymore. I don't know where it went. But. I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened to mine. Mm. <laughs> um, there's, there's one line in that part of the chapter that I just wanted to read because I thought it really captured um, this sentiment, you, you said, I wonder if any American teen asked herself WWJD and then did something truly daring. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what stood out to me, uh, about that is that you, you're capturing the sense where we, it's more about the things we tend to identify, um, our obedience more with the things that we don't do Yeah. than the things, than the things that we actually do. That's so right? true. Mm-hmm. Um, so as long as I'm abstaining from this or I'm, I stop doing this or I don't say that or I don't go there or whatever, um, then I'm living more as Jesus would when it seems that Francis was always looking for the next thing to do. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and, and I thought that was just a great way of, of capturing it. Um, mm. when, when I was uh, along that same time, back when I was wearing the WWJD bracelet as a teenager, um, we had kind of this running joke, uh, only we all really meant it that, you know, if you, if you submitted to God's will or you, you try, you thought about doing something really, uh, drastic in your faith, you would end up in Africa, right? Um, you know, you would end up as a a missionary in, in, um, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and the funny thing is, is that I have two former students. Uh, I, I taught these two young ladies as high school students who actually are now teaching in Christian schools in Africa. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, I guess some sometimes it turns out to be true, but those are young ladies who actually uh, were looking for an opportunity to do something, right? Right, um, right. So now let's let's transition for a bit into, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, Francis's life. Um, and out of that 
individual, you know, one man seeking Christ, um, came the whole Franciscan order. So, so how did Francis go from being one man seeking to obey Christ, you know, in, in every literal way, to the leader of a monastic order? Well, Francis certainly didn't have that in mind. Um, he wasn't setting out to build an institution by any means. I mean, from everything we've talked right. about now, this is not <laughs> this is not the guy's way of being in the world. But he was a natural leader, um, and he was living this alternative lifestyle that people men saw and were attracted to. And so very naturally, um, people would follow him and his numbers, um, expanded and it's, you, you read the story of his life and, um, you know, by the time he died, the Franciscans were quite a large group. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was a real thing. I mean, they were identified as followers of Francis and there were different leaders in the order who helped um, kind of organize themselves. And what I find interesting is that even within these early, early followers of Francis, um, you know, who said that they wanted to follow Jesus just like Francis did, even there, you know, after a while, that exuberance and that all in kind of revolutionary, if you will, way of living kind of lost its appeal. And um, because they had to, they were begging for food and they had nowhere to live. It's just, it, it gets old, you know, camping out like that. And so it's really heartbreaking to me because when you read the story of Francis, as time went on, some of the leaders um, in of the other Franciscans said, "You know, this is this is all well and good, but this person donor has given us a house. She wants to she wants to give us a place so we can do better ministry. Because if we sleep better, you know, if we have a shelter, we'll be healthier, and then we can serve God." better. I mean, you could see the logic, right? And there's right. a story of Francis hopping up on top of this building, tearing the tiles off of the roof and throwing them on the ground because he was like, no, this is wrong. Like we don't, Jesus said, can't have a house, you know, um, that mm. there was a conflict among them where he was just a true believer and others were more practical, or at least they saw it as, as more practical and they were better. They were more institutionally minded. And so by the end of his life, Francis was no longer the leader of his own, um, his own brotherhood. Um, he had been displaced and he had some brothers who were loyal and close to him at the end, but he became very, very ill. He suffered terribly towards the end of his life. And um, I think his last act, he asked his brothers to place him on the ground. He loved the earth so much that he wanted to lie on the earth and feel it. Um, but yeah, before within a matter of years, um, these Franciscan brothers had made some choices that he just didn't agree with. And again, you can argue that they were more effective. They certainly, they still exist today. The Pope, um, is right. a Franciscan himself. So they have done amazing work in the world, advancing the cause of Christ. Um, but you know, they've had their problems too. They're humans. It's a human institution. So as in all institutions, there's all kinds of stories of, you know, compromise and brokenness, but his vision of, uh, literal freedom following Christ, you know, it couldn't even be maintained, um, beyond that, that early generation or two of followers. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that, um, going back to that, uh, 
major um, event in his life in the chapel when he heard Christ say, uh, rebuild my house or rebuild my church. Um, I don't remember how far down the line, but it, it was very early after the Franciscan order had been established that many of his followers began to kind of re- reinterpret that, not to refer just to that specific chapel, but to the whole church. Mm, um, right. And so, so Francis was being seen as kind of a um, revolutionary sort of influence, which uh, again is a, a good example of what you were just saying that, um, many of his followers became more institutionally minded, certainly than he ever was. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it certainly changed, but of, of course, establishing the Franciscan order, it didn't stop there. There was also an order of nuns that rose yes. from Francis's uh, example and teaching. So, mm-hmm. um, tell us about the poor Claire's. This is where St. Claire comes into the picture. So how did, how did she begin? And then the order after her? Well, Claire was another young person who lived in Assisi at the time, and I love her spirit. She was very feisty. She was a teenage girl. Um, She had already been kind of avoiding marriage, which, of course, was her rightful uh, destiny, according to her parents. Um, But she'd been dodging that a little bit. And the story goes that she heard Francis speak, um, preaching, um, probably outside somewhere. And she loved uh, what he had to say about imitating Jesus. And so she made up her mind that she was going to go join this crew of uh, people who were living with with Francis out in the woods. And of course, there was no way she could do that um, uh, out in the daylight because her family would have no part. But so the story goes that at midnight one night, she slipped away from home. She ran all the way to their camp out in the woods and said, okay, I'm here to join. I'm here to join the Franciscans. And Francis, you know, met her there and could see that she was very serious about wanting to uh, live her life for Christ in this way. And so he cut her hair, which at the time was a physical sign that she too would abandon her wealth and her position and her marriage ability to follow Christ unreservedly. Her Mm -hmm. uncles showed up in the morning and tried to drag her home. Um, but it was too late. She'd already cut her hair and they, they couldn't, they couldn't convince her to uh, return to the family. But at the same time, there she was a girl. And, um, at that time, and certainly today, um, it's very tough for a woman to join a group like that. Certainly not a medieval girl. So, um, what I think is really interesting about Claire's story is that she became a nun. That was really her only option, um, as Mm -hmm. a young woman who wanted to live, uh, devote her life to Christ. So she became a nun. She was in a a cloistered community, um, And there, other young women came and joined her. Her sister Catherine, her aunt Pacifica entered this community, and they together had their own ministry. And it was different from the ministry that Francis and his brothers had. The the Clares, they call themselves the poor Clares because they too gave up money and possession. But they imitated Jesus by praying by healing people, by counseling people, you know, who could come to the convent uh, or to the church and and speak with them. Um, And so John Sweeney, who's written, uh, an author I would commend to you, has written about Francis and Claire. And he says in his way that Francis uh, expressed 
the way that Christ lived vigorous earthbound action, you know, of healing, of talking, of preaching, of walking. And Claire expressed Jesus's habits of care and contemplation. Um, and so together, Francis and Claire, in many ways, ex- expressed the fullness of, of Jesus when he lived on earth. Um, and I love Claire's story, too, because I think she shows us another way to follow Jesus literally uh, and reminds us that, you know, there's not that one way to be the best Christian or to, ex- you know, to ex- imitate Christ in this one particular way, but that she had the constraints of her gender, of her time, and yet she found a way there, too, to be faithful uh, to Christ and live as Christ would live. Um, and I just love her strength. Uh, there's some story, I can't, I don't know the details, but Assisi uh, was being invaded um, again. You know, probably the Perusians had come back. I don't know who it was. But, uh, you know, all these soldiers were there at the at the gates of her monastery or convent threatening her and her sisters. And the stories that she went out with the bread of the Eucharist and somehow kept them off by holding communion bread, like in front of them and the, you know, the sign of the Mm. cross or whatever. But she had a very strong spiritual strength about her and um, she too became well-known and there, there are still uh, poor Claire nuns who live and serve, you know, in the world today. Right. Now the lessons um, that that can be taken from the lives of St. Francis and St. Claire are, um, obviously numerous, but they're also pretty difficult to draw because you have, um, as we mentioned, uh, Francis and Claire both seeking to follow Christ in very literal ways. But I'm, I'm interested to hear what, what lessons have you taken uh, from the lives of these two saints? Well, I've, I don't know if it's a lesson, but I would say just a hope that my spiritual life could be one of joy and one of fun and one of spontaneity, you know, that to be a follower of Christ is not necessarily to be, um, a person who sits around and, and just, you know, worries about tomorrow, all these things that we talk about. So, so many times I think we make them kind of like spiritual concerns. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, he just knew how to have a good time and Claire knew how to do what she felt called to. She knew, you know, she would take a risk and run out from home and follow uh, Francis. I love their playful side. Um, I do think the lesson of, uh, being honest too uh, with ourselves about, you know, how are we following Christ? You know, what are the spiritual values that we say that we hold and how true are we to them? Um, and hear his and see their lives as a challenge to us, but an invitation to that, you know, to follow Jesus is risky and it can mean sleeping on the ground, you know, or going to Africa, but, uh, it can also be a joy. It can be a way of freedom. It can be a way of becoming more truly who you are. I love the idea of juggling. That sounds like fun. So for me, the lessons are, you know, that he's an inspiration and I, I I will never be like Francis or Claire as they were, but, um, you know, Jesus uh, still extends that invitation to me to live in the way of, of freedom and peace and real love. So, um, yeah, I see their lives as, um, like with, like with a top athlete, you go, wow, they're amazing, but you know, I'm not going to do that. Um, 
you know, maybe a little like that, that, that there's a space here in this world of following Christ, even for me, um, even if I don't, can't run as fast or climb as high, um, that Jesus invites me into that life too. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing. It was an excellent, excellent chapter in a great book. Thank um, you. So Karen Marsh, thanks for joining me again to share uh, another one of the chapters from Vintage Saints and Sinners. Great being with you. Thank you, Brian. Well, thank you again to Karen Marsh for joining me on this episode of The Commons. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, In the next episode, uh, which I certainly hope you'll tune in for, we're discussing not one figure in the history of the church, but sort of a whole movement that involved a lot of personalities, a lot of very complicated events. We're going to be discussing the Protestant Reformation and the Reformers. So until then, um, I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Hope you have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.